He had never held a girl before. He was not terrified. He had used that up earlier when he had carried her in and kicked the door shut behind him, and had heard the steady drip of blood from her soaked skirt, and before that when he had thought her dead there on the curb, and again when she made that sound, that sigh or whispered moan. He had brought her in, and when he saw all that blood, he had turned left, turned right, put her down on the floor, his brains all clabbered and churned, and his temples a thump with the unaccustomed exercise. All he could act on was, don't get blood on the bedspread. He turned on the overhead light and stood for a moment, blinking and breathing hard. Suddenly, he leaped for the window to lower the blind against the street light, staring in and all other eyes. He saw his hands reach for the blind and checked himself. They were red and ready to paint anything he touched. He made a sound, a detached part of his mind recognizing it as the exact duplicate of that agonized whisper she had uttered out there on the dark, wet street, and leapt to the light switch, seeing the one red smudge already there. Knowing, as he swept his hand over it, he was leaving another. He stumbled to the sink in the corner and washed his hands, washed them again, every few seconds looking over his shoulder at the girl's body and the thick, flat finger of blood which crept, curling toward him over the linoleum. This story is upsetting. Yeah. It's... Although it's it's sort of like you read the first part and you're like, I immediately know where this is going. Well, for me, I was like, I read the first part. And by first part, I mean like the first 99%. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I don't understand how this is a horror story. And then it ended and I was like, oh, I get it. Like, I, I think it's part of the, it's the optimistic part of my brain. It's just like, well, I guess... It's just a happy ending or something? But then, no, it's it's not a happy ending. I mean, the first time he got upset because she was sitting up in the bed, I was like, this isn't good. Actually, the, the beginning of the story, I was like, this isn't good. Right, but it's such a Beauty and the Beast parallel that I was like, I mean, Beauty and the Beast ends with her being, like, with, it, it ends half. So I don't know. I was thinking, like, maybe this is some kind of, like, weird, like, but then at the end, I was like, no, it it's kind of like, Sturgeon saying things just don't work out that way. <laughs> yeah. Also, this character is far, far worse off than the Beast from Beauty and the Beast. Yeah. His brain doesn't really work that well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but first of all, I'm Phil. And I'm Willow. And it's, it's Del, Del Toro, Toro time. time. It's Del Toro time. We keep forgetting to say that. Even and though in the last it's really episode, really not Del Toro time. <laughs> in the last episode, you were like, "We're gonna forget to say the intro," and I'm like, "We're not gonna forget to say the intro." And then we, we forgot, forgot to say, to say the, the intro. intro yeah. And by we, I mean me. Uh, <laughs> I could have but, said something if I'd remembered, but that's true. It's the Dark Descent. We're still on the Dark Descent. Medusa in the Shield, mm-hmm. our third story about the weird psychology of like the internal horror like the horror of a person's internal monologue basically is what's we've been covering so far with three protagonists now including this one who aren't people i'd probably want to hang out with no not really yeah whether or not you're a sort of kind person but who likes to stab women with swords or you're a woman who's scared of roaches to such a degree that she ends up drowning in them or making people drown in them and now today our first story by theodore sturgeon would it surprise you to learn that that's not his original name? It would not. It wouldn't surprise me, but I'd be a bit disappointed. Uh, it is not his original name. Uh, his original name 
which I feel comfortable talking about because he talked about it and gave interviews about it, was Edward Hamilton Waldo. Edward Hamilton Waldo, born in 1918 uh, in New York City, Staten Island. Uh, And as he says in an interview with uh, David Hartwell, someone you might be familiar with. Maybe just a little bit. (laughs) David Hartwell, he said, I was born a Waldo and had kind of an interesting family. And he talks a lot about his family. He's actually distantly related to Ralph Waldo Emerson. Like, that's part of his, like, past. I guess the Waldos were very anti-Catholic church, so they got, like... Uh, persecuted a lot as much as that as people like that can be so they kind of like fled to the Americas Um, his father left his mother when he was five she got remarried she hated the fact that his name reminded her of her ex-husband so she legally changed his name so it's not like a pen name she legally changed his name to Theodore Sturgeon Sturgeon being the stepfather's name Mm -hmm. Uh, who was a who was apparently a nice enough guy, but his mom was like, I mean, if you're so bitter about your marriage, you change your child's name at the age of, I think, 11. <laughs> um, but she's like, every, everyone called him Teddy anyway, so she just changed it to Theodore so they could keep calling him Teddy. Um, and uh, yeah, he started publishing stories in the late 30s, had his own collections coming out by the late 40s. He wrote I for mean, Star... What was his response to the name change? He seems fine. Uh, he seems fine with it. He's like, yeah, that's, you know, I mean, what's he going to do? Uh, I guess. <laughs> and he became a famous, a famous writer. Uh, he Sturgeon. wrote for the, he wrote for Star Trek. He wrote for Land of the Lost. He had stories adapted for the new Twilight Zone in the 80s. Uh, he wrote what is considered the one of the first stories in science fiction to deal uh, with homosexuality. Uh, he put a lot of gay subtext into his work. Uh, he was friends with all the biggies. Uh, and he ended up dying in uh, 1985 of lung fibrosis, probably due to like his constant smoking of cigars. And he was great friends with K- Kurt Vonnegut uh, to such a degree that Kurt Vonnegut's character, Kilgore Trout, is based on Theodore Sturgeon, uh, which caused, I guess, a little friction between them because Kilgore Trout was an unhappy, unsuccessful writer who no one liked. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, Sturgeon used to be like, ah, it's not really based on me. But then later in life, he was like, yeah, guys. Especially once Vonnegut became more famous than Sturgeon, there was like a little tension. <laughs> but we love Kilgore Trout, so whatever. He's had two phrases named after him. Uh, there's Sturgeon's Law, which is nothing is always absolutely so. And uh, Sturgeon's uh, Revelation, which is. of science fiction is crud, but then 90% of everything is crud. Hey, Um, I mean, once you get a revelation named after you, where else can you go from there? Yeah, uh, he was married three times. He had two long-term relationships outside of marriage, and he had seven kids. He wrote a bunch of novels. He wrote a bunch of novelizations. How do you have time for writing when you have seven kids? Nobody knows. I mean, I don't know how well he took care of those kids. Fair enough. (laughs) And his short stories have been collected into several volumes. And by several, I mean 13. There are 13 uh, volumes in the complete uh, Theodore Sturgeon. Uh, So successful guy. Yeah. Successful guy. Uh, And this is one of his... Novelettes. 
This is not a novelette. <laughs> this is a short story. <laughs> what was that? Novelette. <laughs> I, I, do you think it's a novelette? It didn't strike me as a novelette. No, it's a short story. Does a novelette yeah. like does a novelette need to follow the structure of a novel? I would think that that would be part of it. Like, like it, it has to seem like a novel, just sort of like condensed down. Yeah. But this is a short story. Yeah. Yeah. There's two characters. There's one, one location. setting. <laughs> yeah. This could be a play. Yeah. This could be a teleplay, which we'll get to later. Uh, oh no. <laughs> uh, so basically, this is a story of a guy with a developmental disability who finds a woman who has been thrown out of a car after being stabbed. He takes her home, nurses her back to health, becomes obsessed with keeping her there. She wants to leave. Uh, he doesn't want her to leave, not because he's like cruel, but because in his brain, like this is what he's supposed to do. He's supposed to take care of her. Mm -hmm. And uh, in the end, she tells him she has to leave because her life is in danger. And thus, so is his. He pulls her in for a hug, beats her over the head. And puts her back in the bed to nurse her back to health again. Mm -hmm. It's an endless cycle with this guy. Yep. Yeah. Uh, she should have snuck out when she had the chance. Uh, but I guess she didn't know this is where this was going. I I mean, yeah, I guess not. But also the first time that somebody screams at you to stay in bed. Maybe go. <laughs> yeah. So he doesn't speak much. He can't speak much. He doesn't have a, a much vocal capacity. Uh, but he says, got to fix everything is one of his, mm -hmm. one of his constant uh, like uh, things that he repeats. Uh, yeah. And you need me. He's obsessed with people needing him because, frankly, this is a guy who doesn't have anything. Yeah. Yeah. He's treated like. Garbo. Garbage. Yeah. <laughs> Greta Garbo. He's treated like the beautiful Greta Garbo, star of screen. Um, a woman who gave us women in suits, which is an attractive thing. In any case, he's not Greta Garbo. He's treated, yeah, his, his employers like treat him like crap. He's never asked for a day off in his life. He's huge. He's strong. And he's, what I love about this story, the part that just intrigued me to no end is that He's so his brain doesn't work properly. And because his brain doesn't work properly, he doesn't realize that conducting surgery on a person's arteries is hard. Yeah. He's just like, got to fix this. Figures out how to sew up an artery in a way that seems fairly plausible. Uh, he knows he's got to keep it from getting infected. He knows what to buy, but not because he's smart, but because it just he knows how to fix things. And mm -hmm. so it just makes sense to him. He's like, all right, sew this up. So keep the wound open so I can keep it clean. Sew up her cuts. Fix her head. Good. She is fine. Like, it's wild. It, it makes sense. Yeah. No, I... I <laughs> yeah. I, I... Yeah. I, he then proceeds to beat her over the head and holds her captive. But, you know, it's yeah. fine. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm not saying that what he does is fine. <laughs> I'm saying that he's not... I don't think, I mean, whether or not you know what you're doing, like that's, I guess, the the court of law always is like, does a person know they are committing a crime or does a person, or, or is there something going on so much in his head that he thinks what he's doing is right? Like, that's, I, I think, mean, the big question. He definitely has at least some understanding of the law because he brings up that the police are going to arrest him if he calls a hospital. 
Which is wild because, like, if he had just contacted the hospital, they'd probably be like, oh, like, clearly this guy didn't stab her, like, or throw her out of a car. Like, thank you, sir, for finding her. I mean, they might treat him like crap, but yeah, it's, it's weird. He's, he's a, he's a, he reminds me kind of of Lenny from, from, I mean, of, yeah, Lenny from Of Mice and Men. Mm -hmm. Have you read Of Mice and Men? No. But you know who Lenny is. Mm -hmm. He's the big guy who accidentally yeah. kills things. Um, like, means well, understands that he keeps accidentally killing things, but also it's hard to be complete, hold him completely at fault because there's just a lot of things up here that, and by here I mean I'm pointing to my head, up in his head that aren't really connecting. Like, he should definitely go to jail. <laughs> <laughs> but... I think if someone honestly could figure him out, they'd be like, this guy might need to be like in a psychiatric yeah. hospital for I life. Wouldn't, I don't know. I just, yeah. Uh, psychiatric facilities sometimes are worse than jail. Right. But at least in a psychiatric facility, he probably wouldn't be able to hurt anyone accidentally. Give him something constructive to do. Like maybe yeah. just like set him to work fixing. Give him a job in a hospital. <laughs> Put a put a surgical mask over him, put some gloves on him, and just be like, go to town, my friend. All right, fix this. They're like, wow, everyone, we've had 0% fatality rate. And they're like, wow, what's going on? And then like a week later, they're like, all of our patients have been hit over the head and are back in their beds. <laughs> uh, he doesn't have a name. She doesn't, have, she never gets a name. Uh, the only other characters we get, we see are his, his like coworkers and employees when he calls in sick to stay with her. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, at first I'm like, oh, this is great. He's like, not smart, but he figures things out. Yeah. And then she starts coming too. And he's like, and like forces her back down to the bed. Not because he's mad at her, but because she's like breaking these weird rules he's created. Like, it's not that he's, he's super controlling, but only because he's like, no, 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 nothing. I finally found someone who needs me to do something and they've got to keep needing me. Like she makes him an amazing breakfast. Mm -hmm. And what does he do? No. Yeah. He trashes the house and throws everything away and she starts crying and he's like, what's wrong? I don't understand why you're wrong. He's like, there's abusive boyfriend. There's captor. And then there's this guy who's like <laughs> operating on a whole other level. Yep. It's, yeah yeah it's not a good not a good situation it's not a good situation uh unless i mean maybe if she was permanently confined to bed like if she had like a severe brain injury and like couldn't get up mm -hmm. then maybe he's the perfect caretaker because he's just gonna take care of you but if you want any kind of autonomy um yeah because she she slips into bed with him at one point and tries to initiate sex mm-hmm and he's like having none of it like so and at that point i was like okay like this isn't gonna go there this isn't that kind of a story yeah yeah he's not like a weird like predator he's just this guy in fact in the beginning i thought he had hurt her mm -hmm. because they set it up that way yeah uh but no he just found her just found her what time period does this take place i assume the time period it was written in the 1960s that's what i thought uh, too yeah, uh, yeah, because this was first published, um, Bright Segment. It was called Bright Segment. I don't think we even mentioned that. 
Yeah, this is a story bright segment by Theodore Sturgeon, everyone. Yes. Uh, 1955. It originally appeared in his collection uh, called Caviar, which is, <laughs> I guess, if if you're going to publish a bunch of your short stories and call them Caviar, you got to be pretty confident. Uh, <laughs> well, maybe you have to be really unconfident because Caviar is gross. Yeah, maybe he hates Caviar and he's like, oh, you suck. I'm as bad as Caviar. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I don't think that's the case. Um, yeah, first published in Caviar, uh, and then just published in Caviar over and over again. Like, years later, five years later, it was published in Shock Magazine, a magazine of terrifying tales. And you know what? It is terrifying. Yeah. It is kind of terrifying. Uh, it, it's been compared to Beauty and the Beast and uh, Hunchback of Notre Dame. Yeah. Uh, you saw those parallels? Yeah. Well, I can see them. I didn't connect them in my head while i was reading it because i was like this is gross mm-hmm. the, i was I, I i skimmed through some of the medical stuff because it was a bit much i thought i almost skimmed through it and then i went back and made myself read it just because i was actually very curious as to how they justified it and that was when i was like oh i guess like okay i yeah, mean i guess I she- mean- I read the stitches and the stuff like that because that was interesting i just skimmed through the description of all the blood there's a lot of blood. I was like, I don't need to know how the blood looks coming towards you, sir. I don't. <laughs> it does do a good job at putting it, putting you into his head. Mm-hmm. Like, that's not a good thing. It's not a comfortable thing. I don't want to be in this man's head. I don't want to be in this man's house. I don't want to be <laughs> in my own head. Right. I don't want to be in this man's neighborhood unless I get knocked out and have to be taken care of. But then I want someone to know where I am. <laughs> Or you want someone uh, to call like the the hospital, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it's also very similar to misery in a way. Like Stephen King's misery, man is injured, gets taken home by a by a person who nurses him back to health, but then won't let him leave because she has to take care of him. And if he tries to leave, she gets violent. In fact, it's it's this misery. Is a, this is this is misery. It's a criminal minds episode about that. <laughs> This is, yeah, this is that story. It's just misery. Maybe it's the OG. I don't know. Bright Segment. Uh, It's called Bright Segment uh, because in the very end, like, it's like the last page. Um, And remember, this guy has a miserable life. She is confronting him, and he's trying to keep her in the apartment. And and he, he says, you don't go. You need me. And she says, you don't need me, and I don't need you. It comes to that, honey. It's the way you fixed it. It's the right way. Can't you see that? Uh, And he starts crying. She starts yelling because she's like, oh, this is killing me that you are so upset. And then it says, he stumbled across the room and caught himself on the lower shelf of the china closet. He looked back and forward along the dark, echoing corridor of his years, stretching so far and drearily. And he looked at this short, bright segment slipping away from him. And that's when he hugs her and then smashes her over the head but it is like so like this is a story about like though he he says he's like in his 50s this is like the one moment ever in his life in which there was light and how dangerous that is like it's that thing of like well now i have to hold on to it forever yeah, uh, yeah. truly this is a story about how mental health support needs to increase. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. And clearly this is a 1950s representation of mental health. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
where there's still like a lot of fear over people who have mental disabilities um uh, as opposed to like them being of course the most vulnerable members of society yep uh, as opposed to the people who are more often the perpetrators someone like this guy i mean unless he was probably like goaded into hurting someone i doubt this is a this is the guy you should be afraid of. Yeah. Uh, and if you goad this guy into hurting you, sorry, dude. <laughs> yeah, what? Stop goading people into hurting you. He's, really? Uh, there's a great comic book called The Goon, and the character of The Goon is very much like this guy. He's huge. He's violent. He, can, he doesn't talk much. Uh, and he l- is very caring in his own weird, upsetting way. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the goon. Um, but yeah, I would say of the three protagonists we've had so far, I would say of the three stories we've read so far in this book, this is the one that I find the scariest so far. Yeah. I think just... I honestly, I didn't pick up that he was disabled throughout most of the story right away. Oh, really? Yeah, I guess I was just too freaked out by everything else that was happening. Um, I got it at the end, finally. I was like, oh, wait, hang on. Well, it really stands out when he tries to talk and you realize that he can't really speak. Mm-hmm. And she can't speak initially because she has a brain injury. Yeah. And so initially they're kind of on even ground. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was going to be, I don't know. Oh, maybe they discover they could control roaches. I'm not sure where I thought it was going to end up going. I just, I think I was so freaked out because I immediately knew where it was going. Mm. Um, I don't know. I just, I, I guess the, I, I have too much media that I've consumed has been a similar <laughs> like tale and uh, too many like warnings as a woman, I guess, mm-hmm. just immediately put it into my head. <laughs> right. Um. So I... I was too freaked out by that to really pick up on a lot of the intricacies of the story. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I guess I'm the eternal optimist when it comes to reading. I'm like, it's got to all turn out for the best. It also reminds me of, have you ever seen Tucker and Dale versus Evil, mm-hmm. the movie? Uh, it starts the same way. A uh, young woman gets knocked out. Uh, guy who doesn't talk very well, is very awkward and uncomfortable, takes her back to his place and nurses her back to health. She wakes up and freaks out. Tucker and Dale versus Evil, of course, he is a very nice man. Um, but uh, yeah, I wonder if this is like the ur text of the of the misery criminal minds mold. <laughs> uh, I wonder if this is like, oh yeah, this is a cool idea. Like we can make scarier. Um, I wonder. No, there has to be like some ancient Greek tale before this. Come on. <laughs> I mean, captivity tales, obviously. Beauty and the Beast, obviously. Mm-hmm. I, I guess I can mean like in modern times, like yeah. as far as like modern horror goes. You Who tell knows? me. Somebody tell me. Sturgeon experts tell me. Tell me. Right now. I'll wait. The phone lines are open. Um, it's also the first story we've read so far that doesn't have any supernatural elements. Mm-hmm. Or supernatural elephants. No supernatural elephants in this room. No. Uh, if you're seeing any, get help. I'll include a number in the show notes. Yeah. Um, now, I mentioned a teleplay of oh, this. Oh, good. Uh, it is impossible to find. Mm-hmm. But in, uh, let me see, I will pull it up. In 1974, the French director, Christian de Chalons, uh, as part of a TV series called Histoire Insolite, 
uh, I think strange histories or weird stories, something like that, directed Parcel Brilliant, which means brilliant parcel or bright segment, um, which is a direct adaptation of this story starring Gert Frobe, who played Goldfinger in the movie Goldfinger, and Juliette Berthaud uh, as the young woman. And uh, there's hardly any information about it out there because it's impossible to find. Because Theodore Sturgeon, uh, there's all kind, there were all kind of weird rights issues with it. And Theodore Sturgeon himself said uh, it was made into a 1958, a 58-minute TV film in France with Gert Frobe cast as the old man and doing an extraordinary piece of acting. Further, the French shot it almost exactly the way I wrote it, and I wrote it despairing that it could not be filmed. American TV could never handle that much blood and that much skin. I wish you could see it. I own the only print in North America, but I can't use it for admission or release it to the net or on cable. I can, however, use it as a lecture resource, a three-hour performance during which I read the story up to but not including the ending. Then I challenge the students, creative writing, scripting, directing, cinematography, what have you, to suggest what they would include or change or eliminate if this were their film. Then I show the film, read my ending, and launch a Q&A. It takes about three hours, and it costs, but I understand it's worth the nut. Uh, and this is from the book uh, Bright Segment, uh, uh, which is, uh, I just think that's amazing. Like, it's this sort of, like, lost film that Theodore we're not allowed Surgeon? to watch. Theodore, I, he mentions the net. I can't release it to the net. So the internet existed. Did anyone secretly film this? <laughs> I don't, I don't know how they would have, but, and get it. And I want to see this movie just to see like, how, because the story takes place all in this guy's mind. How do you put that on film in a way that the author himself is like, it works. It works. We, oui, we, oui, the French. I don't know. I don't know. If anyone has this, please give it me. I want to see it. I want to see the, the bright segment. Because I bet it's really a good time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just watched a 55-minute adaptation of Bridge to Terabithia uh, for my other podcast. <laughs> so I'm I am ready to watch heartbreaking things. Next up on that podcast, the 2000 whatever film of Bridge to Terabithia. So I'm raring to go. Show I've... me young women getting killed. Eventually, you get desensitized to it, right? <laughs> Look at who you're talking to. I cry at YouTube reactions to movies I've seen. No, I don't get desensitized. Um, yeah. Uh, I also don't get desensitized to things. Yeah. That's our, that's our curse and our blessing. Uh, bright segment. Bright segment. Uh, really thumbs up, unfortunate thumbs representation of people with disabilities. But a spooky story, I guess. <laughs> I guess. And I think if we're going to bring in Guillermo del Toro, uh, here he comes. Hey. <laughs> hey, hey, guy. How's, how you doing? If we're going to bring in Guillermo del Toro. Uh, this is the good story to start with. <laughs> this is, yeah, the protagonist has that kind of like, I can see him doing something with this or like this. I don't think he would have uh, ended it this way, though. I think he would have done something to change the ending, mm -hmm. but this is kind of his bread and butter protagonist. Yeah. Misunderstood monster. I like, don't think this guy's even a monster, though. But Del Toro would make him a monster. Yeah. 
I he'd think, be like Bane. <laughs> I think this is just an unfortunate representation. <laughs> an unfortunate person. Yeah. Uh, but I, but do, do, do you see what I'm saying? Like it has that weird like the 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 uh, like the 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 person who society thinks is mm-hmm. is 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 a monster it has the 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 waifish woman it has like it has a few gamuto toro like isms yeah uh he would probably he could combine it with the roaches somehow like it all takes place in that city it's like it's like uh like um hellboy yeah he has the big strong guy and then the waifish woman who can control roaches. And they're making an unlikely superhero duo. Can they get along in the city? <laughs> bright segment. So that's bright segment from uh, The Dark Descent. Uh, it's it's an upsetting story. It's just an upsetting story. In more um, ways than one. But I think worth, worth taking a look at. We didn't even... I mean, it's hard to sell. Like Sturgeon's prose is beautiful. Mm-hmm. It's he, he's it's evocative and hard to read at times because it's so just like graphic. But uh, but yeah, a lot of blood, uh, a lot of medicine, medical stuff. Probably the most medical story we've read since the autopsy. I was gonna. I thought you were just gonna end it there. I was like, you mean the the autopsy was. <laughs> Yeah, 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 uh, yeah, and important to the story. But that, so that's that. That's that. What is our next dark descent? Medusa I actually don't shield? know because I don't have the book with me. Well, then I will tell you, because we are flash forwarding to the 1980s, uh, to a little gentleman. He's not little, but to a gentleman named Clive Barker, uh, and his short story, Dread, not D R E D D. But D R E A D, the actual word dread. Not. Uh, and not, if you need, what what is the guy's name? What guy? Oh, never mind. <laughs> J- Judge Dread. Yeah, there you go. That's who I was referring to. Yeah, no, I know that. That's that's why I was. Uh, gonna, I couldn't remember. Yeah, not not Judge Dread. He doesn't. Yeah, not Judge Dread. Although I would do a Judge Dread podcast if I had the druthers. Um, dread by Clive Barker, a man who needs no introduction. I would hope. Um, but also a short story that I believe there is a movie based on. So maybe I'll maybe take a we'll look at that. Maybe we'll get back to the movies in this next Yeah, maybe episode. I'll take a look at that. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I don't know if it's any good. So, but hey, definitely. We've, we've covered bad movies on this show before. Oh, have we? <laughs> <laughs> Antlers, anyone? <laughs> I watched a bad movie yesterday. I watched the 2009 Friday the 13th. Yeah. Um, a remake, reboot, reimagining. Uh, uh, not very good. Uh, I know that's sacrilege to a lot of people. I, I say this as someone who loves me a Jason movie, but not not my favorite. So it gets the big thumbs down. What was it called? Phil. Friday the Thirteenth. Oh, okay. Yeah. I don't know if there was like a specific title under the installment or anything. Oh no, just it's just the 2009 reboot. But I do know the one of the screenwriters. So I went to high school with him. So in any case, uh, I don't blame him. Who did you go to high school with? Who didn't I go to high school with? Um, you're right. I went to high school with a lot of people who ended up being much more successful than me, but none of them raised a daughter as wonderful as you. False. <laughs> <laughs> but that's it. That's uh, that's that's our story. We'll see you next time with Clive Barker's Dread. Maybe a little body horror coming into play. It's Clive Barker. There's already uh, been a lot of body horror coming into play. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> Maybe some goops and gloops. We don't know. Uh, But until then, uh, I am Phil. And I'm Willow. And we'll see you when it's it's Del Toro Toro time. time.